ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's just a general feeling that we are just all so tired. This feeling of tiredness has uh, been rising. Patients come in and ask for medical certificates because they feel they just can't work, they just don't have the energy. It's nearing the end of the year and we're all feeling pretty fried. One word I'm hearing a lot is that you're limping to the end of the year and can't wait for holidays to begin. In Australia, we have the great November disease. The belief, if I can just get to Christmas, fall over the finishing line, then in December it'll all come good and by January it'll all be fixed. Yeah, exactly. It's not true. Wait, what? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, I'm getting to the bottom of why we're feeling so tired and how it's impacting our work. My body is telling me something. Am I listening? Am I the only one? I mean, if everyone in your whole team is exhausted, what is it about our workplace? This is Professor Ian Hickey. I'm the co-director of health and policy at the Brain and Mind Centre of the University of Sydney. In one in two workers aged between 18 to 54 say that they feel exhausted at work. That is an extraordinarily high percentage. It is very high and it's good that people are talking about it, but Mm. it does cause us all to stop and go, now hang on a sec, work's supposed to be the fun part of life, the enjoyable bit, the bit we thrive on, and yet we say we're exhausted by it. And what do we mean when we say exhausted? Well, I think that's the interesting thing because we use a physical term, like physical exhaustion. Mm. We don't use a sort of mental term. We don't say we're stressed by it. We haven't got our life in balance. We, we report it in a physiological sense, which I think is kind of good in one sense. It's recognising the physical toll. In other words, it's not so good because it kind of sort of separates it out from the context in which it's happening. Like what's the set of stresses? What is it we're really talking about? And therefore, of course, What's the solution? I mean, it's not okay that one in two who just goes to work exhausted and sees work then as the problem if I didn't work. Now, I've got to say, there's a great idea in Australia. If you're retired, lay on the beach in Queensland, you'd be happy. I'm here to tell you, if you retire, lie on the beach in Queensland first and you're male, you'll get depressed and then you'll die. Okay, so that's not a good outcome. (laughs) Work is a very good thing done well. Hmm, done well. So how well are we working right now? Are we working crazy hours and more stressed for time than ever? People are not tired because they've got too much to do. This is Mark Wooden. Professor and Research Fellow at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. Mark's the former director of the HILDA survey, which has been running since 2001. HILDA stands for Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia Survey. It's a uh, panel survey, which means we sort of follow the same people over time. 17,000 people, to be exact. And Mark's observed that tiredness has been rising. It was fairly stable throughout the sort of the 2000s when we first started, uh, but it has been picking up. You know, pretty much this feeling of tiredness got worse for most age groups up to about the age of, up to about midlife, up to about 45. I'm interested in, we love blaming COVID for things as well, and I'm interested in whether um, any of the tiredness or mental health issues might be related to when we went to hybrid or remote working, Mark. Well, it's an interesting thing because, um, see, 
while these feelings of tiredness have increased, feelings of being rushed or pressed for time have actually gone in the other direction, gone down. And, and they dropped quite a bit during COVID. I mean, prior to COVID, pretty much the only people who really worked from home extensively were self-employed people. I mean, the proportion of employees who were doing it most of the time was like 1%. It was a very small group. Uh, so now we're talking, you know, like a third of the workforce sort of working, you know, sort of hybrid arrangements, at least two, three days, that sort of thing at home. What about long hours, Mark? Are we working longer than we used to because we're working from home more and our boundaries are blurred? Well, the hours is very interesting. Uh, this is a slower development, not as dramatic as the sudden change in work hours. It's been a slow burn. Um, we often focus on the average hours people work, but where the big change has occurred is amongst the people working those really long hours. So, you know, two decades ago, lots of commentators in the space were worried about these people working 50, 60 hours a week. And that that has declined quite a bit. About 20 years ago, 18% of us were working more than 50 hours a week, and now that's down to 11%. And that's, I think, a big reason why in these data, fewer people are reporting feeling rushed or pressed for time. But it's still sort of interesting that people are still feeling more tired. So this is interesting, and I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit, or at least give us some scuttlebutt from around the Hilda traps. Um, if we're seemingly working reasonable hours and our time stress is declining. Why do you think there is this persistent feeling of feeling tired and mentally overloaded? Well, I suspect, I mean, I guess, I guess it's just speculative, that there are stresses that do not actually impose anything on time, but nevertheless are harmful for vitality, right? Mm. So that's coming back to things like you know, climate change anxiety and the, those sorts of things. So there are stresses in life. So, you know, so objectively you ask people, you know, do you have less time to do things? And they go, no, but that doesn't mean they don't feel stress from other places. So, for example, rising cost of living uh, is a stressor, okay, and, and it doesn't have much impact on your time, though, it, of course, it could cause some people to work an extra job. And, but the multiple job holding is, is a thing. Um, but the increase in that was like from 6% historically to now maybe a little under 7 So not a huge change there. So that's a change for some people. But for most people, we're all feeling the cost of you know, rising rents, rising mortgage costs, these sorts of things. So that's imposing stress. and Therefore, that's affecting sleep quality. Uh, therefore, that's affecting you're feeling tired, right? You may get, you may be going to bed, but you're not sleeping well, for example. That's one uh, speculative response. So what does the HILDA survey reveal about our mental well-being, Mark? Ah, well, that's an interesting question. Um, has been much studied by lots of people. It, it seems to have changed in the last about decade and does look like mental well-being, uh, as measured by some very simple questions that we ask every year, has declined. And it's declined most precipitously for people who are younger. Okay, so it's so for the for the oldest, you know, sort of the retirement age people, not really much change over time. Um, but as you move to younger and younger cohorts, um, it does appear to be declining um, quite markedly, actually. And when we're talking about mental well-being, what type of factors are you taking to account in Hilda, Mark? 
there are multiple ways of getting at this within Hilda. The one that people mostly use is this, what they call the mental health inventory. It's five questions, sort of captures very crude indicators of how people are feeling, you know, anxiety, depression. It's, they're not measures of that. They're so like, how do you feel? Do you feel down in the dumps? Do you feel, you know, those sorts of questions, very, very subjective. But they have been found to be good markers uh, indicators of people who are at risk of, of developing mental health disorders. and there, But there are other things, and there's this question around vitality, and which is where this issue of feeling tired comes into it. And so that's correlated with this as well. So, pe- so people who, who, feel, who report feeling tired all the time, it's often related to their mental health state as well. We have this thing called in our head. So it's about stress, it's about anxiety, it's about psychological factors. And then we've got this other thing called physical. Fatigue, pain, headache, stuff, as if they're in two completely separate worlds, unconnected. Actually, it's the one thing. So the first thing is to put the two together. They go together. Professor Ian Hickey again. Something about our world, which is stressful, which is difficult, which is not resolving itself, is playing out on our physiology. Tired, exhausted... And then for not being able to cope mentally and physically with the challenges that we are facing and feeling the worst thing, we should give it all up. We should somehow just bust it all out and we'll be better. But Ian, how does feeling stressed, anxious or depressed make us feel tired? Yes. So it's really important to focus on how psychological stress transmits itself or becomes embodied in you actually being tired, being physically tired, and I might say going beyond that, being physically sick, putting you at risk of things like infection and risk of other further problems down the track. So when you are stressed or aroused, you release hormones and chemicals that alert your whole system, turn it on. They, they turn on the release of glucose, they release adrenaline, they release other stress hormones, cortisol, etc., to fight or respond to whatever threat or challenges out there in the community. Now, all of those things exhaust energy, and and they're quite challenging. They're meant to turn off again shortly thereafter. Whatever was threatening you, whether it was internal, like an infection, or external, like a lion that wanted to eat you, or in our case, a bus that wants to run you over, it should turn off again. If it stays on, it continues with its excited, aroused fashion. In the brain, that burns up energy, and in fact, it burns up nerve cell connections. <laughs> it actually does damage. It's toxic. So there's a normal regenerative, restorative period when that ends. If you stay in those high arousal states, it continues, and it does damage too in the brain, synaptic connections between nerve cells in the body to hormonal systems, in the sort of metabolic systems, in the glucose-type systems, in the immune system, your capacity to fight infection, you have to turn those things off. So those things actually do damage to the body systems and exhaust them. So it's very exhausting to be anxious and aroused all the time. Now, if it goes on for more than 24 hours, it disrupts your sleep-wake cycle, which is the off period. Your brain is not asleep when you are asleep. It's doing other things. Your body is not asleep. (laughs) It's not off. It's doing regenerative, restorative things. It's dumping toxic stuff out of your head. It's reconnecting nerve cells to where they need to be. It's reorganizing the body's hormone and immune systems so that you can get up again the next day and do it again and start again in a 24-hour cycle. So if you don't have the regenerative period, if you just have the excitotoxic on period, continuously you do damage. It exhausts the system. And that physiologically represents itself as fatigue. And so because these are connected, what are you saying is the implication of that rather than separating it out? 
We've got to see what's going on. We've got to see the whole context of what is going on and why, very important, as you've highlighted, rates of both are going up. So people actually are accurately reporting mm. their stress levels are going up. They know there's a mental aspect to it, an environmental aspect, and it's playing out in terms of their physiology. They're physically exhausted. They don't feel well. Their well-being is gone. They're jet-lagged all the time. They know there's something wrong. So rather than just knowing there's something wrong, What's to be done? You know, what do we understand is happening? Not just to a few people and not just those who might have been at risk of depression or anxiety or particular mental health problems, but it's playing out for a lot of people right at the moment and is representing it. So it's good that people are reporting it. What what upsets me is not many people talk about, okay, what are we going to do about it? Like, what's the nature of the problem? Well, here's the thing. We've been sort of improving and progressing things at work so that we can have more balance in our lives, whether it be hybrid work or using technology to get rid of all the things that we don't want to do. So why are we feeling more stressed, anxious, depressed and tired? (laughs) What's happening? Well, that's the interesting assumption you're making. We did all those things, flexibility, informality, new technologies. Surely this is everything we want. You know, the idea that you can just increase the load continuously because you can, because technology and flexibility allows us to do that, doesn't necessarily correspond with what we are physiologically, which is these things that have an on-off period called activity and then sleep. And we also can't be on 24-7. We can't be doing the same thing. We are not machines. We have natural cycles that allow us to restore energy and concentration. And most importantly, from my point of view, joy, hedonism, pleasure. And we have periods when we need to have downtimes. So the balance thing's kind of interesting. I'd say it's not much of, so much of balancing, but getting the on-off, the change in periods, doing the things we need to do to stay well, actually sorted in a regular way. So I do sometimes have patients come in and ask for medical certificates because they feel they just can't work, they just don't have the energy. This is Dr Natasha Yates. I'm a general practitioner and I've worked for about 20 or more years in general practice, rurally as well as in the urban setting. So what I'm hearing from patients is that our expectations are different and the workplace expectations are different as well. I think while we were in the midst of the pandemic, there was a lot of grace given to people. Uh, There was a lot of understanding that there was no normal. Everyone was anxious. Everyone was not sure what was going to happen next. And so workplaces tended to be a lot more flexible. What I'm hearing now is that workplaces are now turning around and saying the pandemic is over, which of course we know is not true. (laughs) But from a workplace perspective, people are expected to essentially get back to the way that things used to be. And that's just not realistic. Almost always when I dig down, what they are suffering from is emotional or mental fatigue and their workplaces have become really toxic. Um, They're finding that they're just not able to perform at work and they're not getting the support that they need at work. So in desperation, they're coming to a GP to ask for a medical certificate to enable them to um, recover. And I think part of the issue there is that it probably doesn't matter how much time they take off work, if they're in a toxic workplace and they're in a place that if they're not given the resources they need um, to be able to look after themselves properly, no amount of time off is going to enable them to get back to work fully functioning again. 
And there are some red flags you can look out for when you're trying to decide if your tiredness is normal, everyday tiredness, or something that you need to take note of. If you're finding that the things you used to enjoy doing, you just don't have the energy to do, whereas a couple of years ago, maybe you would have said, oh, fantastic, I'll go and do that. And now you're actually turning down those invitations, maybe not hanging out with friends. Not exercising is a common thing that goes out the window when when we're moving into a a more um, pathological form of tiredness. Waking up and continually hitting the snooze button because even though we have slept as many hours as we wanted to, we're just not feeling refreshed. I think one of the, the common things that we actually ask patients directly about is, do you fall asleep when you're sitting down in front of the telly or or sitting down to read a book. If you're finding you're dozing off in those situations, that's a a really um, important sign. Uh, And I think another one that a lot of people can relate to, particularly if you've got young kids, is from the moment you wake up, all you can think about is when can I get back to bed? (laughs) It's then chipped into a a pretty dysfunctional form of tiredness. Ian, is it a sign that if we're feeling tired and unmotivated at work, that we might also be suffering from psychological distress without even knowing it? I'd say by definition you are. If you've lost interest in the thing you really care about, you know, I see doctors who've been great doctors their whole life, oh, I no longer care about medicine. Mm. Medicine is not the problem. <laughs> I see nurses who are no longer interested in caring about people. And these are people who cared about people their whole lives. Childcare workers, I'm sick of young children. <laughs> okay, hang on a second. I don't think that's the problem. You know, I don't think the profession is the problem. I don't think you've lost interest in the thing you passionately are engaged with. You know, I think it might be that you are overwhelmed. You know, that you've lost, you've lost your relationship with it. Now, I've got to say, we all live long lives now. A very important advice given to me by an, an older uh, colleague many years ago, he said, make sure you change directions, Ian, within your career at least four times. Mm. <laughs> Find new things, do different things. Don't just do the same thing year in, year out new challenges, new developments, go on developing your career, you know, go on through new interests and different ways of approaching new challenges. I mean, it's one of those funny things that where you think about new challenges and doing new things, you might think, well, that's expending energy. But actually what you're saying is that it would give you energy and motivation rather than uh, deplete it. Totally, totally. Brains respond to novelty. Brains respond to challenges. Humans get bored really quickly. And that's a problem in our modern world because if you look at people's engagement at work but also an engagement in social organisations outside of work, it's gone down. People are more on their own. People are more interacting with their own machines, with their own technology and less interacting in that which gives humans great pleasure and is energising, as you just emphasised. Novelty, interaction with others is energising. And Ian, if half of prime age workers are exhausted in their work, what's your message to them? Got to stop and think. What is really going on here? What, what has changed? If you're in that situation, you've gone into some non-sustainable thing that requires a bit of serious reflection. And that might be in your own life, but it might well be in the team or workplace or group you're working with. Are you just gone into survival mode? A lot of people in the post-COVID era have just gone into survival mode or just gone back or just assumed they're going to do all that family stuff as well as everything else. And as you said, they're just going to get to December. They're going to collapse on a beach. And next January, it'll all be remarkably different. Guess what? It won't. So it it is kind of going, okay, my body is telling me something. Am I listening? Am I the only one? I mean, if everyone in your whole team is exhausted, what is it about our workplace? 
you know, what is it about the challenges? What is it about the way we're organizing things that we've just exhausted ourselves? And the worst thing is it's not sustainable. So in my world, the worst thing is when young people quit. The worst thing is when people give up what they're really passionate about. You know, so as a society, and I think as managers in workplace and in key organizations, got to be thinking, if that's the reality, if people are telling us this, you know, we've been through a very disruptive period from the COVID period onwards. It didn't end just because COVID's kind of ended and we're not doing the same restrictions. The world's had a significant tilt (laughs) to it. And a lot of people are telling us that, that we've got to get a better reconciliation here between our physiology and our world so they're sustainable, so they're pleasurable, so you want to be as engaged with work as you are with your family and with your wider social world. Ian, what would you advise is, in your experience, one of the best ways to develop a sustainable work life? So I think you really have to think about this in a number of ways. One's in a 24-hour period. What do you do every day that makes tomorrow sustainable. You know, most, a lot of weeks people go, oh, if I can just get through Tuesday and Wednesday, <gasps> you know, if I can just get to Friday, they go, hang on a second, what if you had to work Saturday? And so what if you had to work seven days a week? How would you do that? So there's kind of what do you need to do every day in terms of physical activity, in terms of sleep-wake cycles, in terms of enjoyments, in terms of intense periods of concentration, but then periods where you take time out from that. What do you do on a daily basis? Then what do you do on a kind of weekly basis? What is your weekly routine? What are are the periods where you take seriously time out? And do the things you need to do physically, outside, in sunshine, with others, the physicality of what we do that keeps us physiologically well so we can be psychologically well. What's scheduled that you will do those things that have this interplay of novelty, of physicality, of engagement, of pleasure? Did I say that enough times? I'm always impressed when I meet people in really high-flying jobs like, you know, prime ministers, CEOs of international companies, the first thing they have, somebody arrives from HR and goes, what's the sustainability plan? Because you could do this 24-7 and you'll be dead in three months. So if you want to be here more than three months, and they have all these people around them to make sure they have a sustained plan. What time out every day, what their weekend things will do, when they're going to tend to spend time away from the office, when they're going to take breaks, when they're going to go on holiday, when they're going to do the things they enjoy doing, cognitively, emotionally, socially, and I must say physically, outside, physically being active, that we have body systems that you need to work with, not work against, to maintain that high concentration, high energy, high activity focus. Should you expect, though, your leader to care about your levels of energy and be uh, planning for that? Or do you think it's an uh, individual person's responsibility to look after their own energy, motivation and feelings of tiredness, exhaustion? No, I do think there's a management responsibility. I think healthy workplaces and healthy organisations have a management response. They do not rely on individuals just making random choices. Individuals make bad choices for career reasons, for aspirations. People don't always act in the interests. People don't always recognise the situation they're in. They don't recognise how tired they are. In fact, a lot of people in essential jobs deny it. They don't speak. They're afraid the impact on their career. They're afraid that people think badly of them. They're afraid they're letting people down. But, you know, smart organisations avoid that critical person vulnerability by sharing. But also, teams are more productive than individuals. There's lots of evidence that teams, for many complex tasks, do better than individuals through diversity of views, but also through this basic substitution. There are plenty of options. We are all prone to having down periods. And there's one last thing Ian needs you to know about the thing he calls the November disease. I'd say the great November disease has another problem associated with it is that people make really bad decisions 
So it's so bad. I'm not just going to take the holiday off. I'm going to quit the job. I'm not going to do what I was planning to do. I'm going to chuck it all away. This is the end of the line. Okay, it's such a bad decision. <laughs> Don't do that. Please take actions now. Thanks to my guests, Professor Ian Hickey, Professor Mark Wooden and Dr Natasha Yates. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by Brendan O'Neill. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And if this episode raised any concerns for you and your mental health, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and please speak to your GP if you need help with your fatigue. Next time on This Working Life, what sounds at work drive you up the wall? Any sounds related to eating, so slurping, lip smacking, that kind of thing. There's nose and throat sounds, so that's things like repetitive sniffing, coughing, throat clearing. And then there's environmental sounds, and those are sort of repetitive. It can be tapping or rustling or sort of scraping kind of sounds. So that can come from things that humans do, or it can come from things that machines or things that are in the environment. Turns out it's a condition called misophonia. The nature of the reaction was different, so they said it was more likely to cause an anger or a panic response. So the intensity and the nature of the reaction is different. You'll be learning all about it, how it impacts people at work and what you can do about it. Don't miss out. Make sure you're following the This Working Life podcast to catch it as soon as it drops. Until then, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.